0: Jezebel in the Old Testament was a clever woman, a wicked woman. She came from Phoenicia. Her father was a king, and she introduced Baal worship. And I won't even describe it. It is so heinous and evil, it should never be mentioned some of the things that she did from a pulpit.
1: Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We've begun a look at the church at Thyatira, the fourth in a series of seven churches addressed by Jesus to the Apostle John, in our study of the Revelation. The name of today's study is Jesus or Jezebel. And that's because in this passage, Jesus actually rebukes the church for tolerating the woman Jezebel, whom He says teaches and leads His bondservants astray. As we pick up, Dr. Brogy notes how Jesus in each of the passages dealing with these seven churches is portrayed by a unique title representative of the church that's being addressed.
0: So he chooses seven titles, and he doesn't uh, obscurely choose the seven titles. He chooses a title of himself from the first chapter that fits the need of the city and the need of the church and where that church is in their spiritual growth. So if you remember, in chapter one, he spoke of the seven stars. He uses that to describe Ephesus. He spoke of the first and the last, and we saw the significance of that as it relates to Smyrna. He spoke of the sharp sword that comes out of his mouth, and we saw the significance of that as it relates to Pergamum. And now to the church at Thyatira, he describes himself again from the first chapter, with eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze. If you haven't done it, write it out in the margin, Revelation 1, 14 and 15. That's where that comes from, Revelation 1, 14 and 15. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, John writes in the vision. This speaks of his gaze, that he is perceptive, that he is discerning. In Revelation 19 and verse 12, the Bible describes him at his second coming as coming again with eyes that are aflame, eyes that are flaming. He sees everything. He sees the window of our hearts. Some of us wish we had a stained glass window this morning over it, but he sees right through us, and he knows everything about us, and yet he still loves us. But you cannot hide from Jesus. You can hide from your pastor. You can hide from your boss. You can hide from your friend. You can hide from your spouse. But you cannot hide from Jesus Christ. So we are not surprised in Acts chapter 1 and verse 24 that Jesus is called the uh, cardiognosis. Cardia, we get our word cardia, heart. He's the gnosis. He is the one who knows the hearts. He knows the hearts of all men. And so Jesus sees what is in us today. His eyes picture very clearly his ability to discern. And by the way, what's so interesting is that in the vision of Revelation chapter 1, it matches the description of the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter seven and not by accident. The Ancient of Days, if you remember, was the descriptive metaphor that the Father uses of himself. And yet those same descriptive terms from Daniel seven are applied to God the Son in Revelation one and throughout these two chapters as he pulls from that chapter. Why? Because to see him is to see the Father. He was deity in diapers at his incarnation. He was very God, of very truly God and truly man. And his eyes, even before his resurrection body is given to him, are very descriptive in the Gospels. For instance, in Mark chapter 3, when the religious leaders want to see if he will heal a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, Jesus with his eyes gazed at them and he saw their hardness of heart. With that piercing gaze, with eyes of fire, he saw what was true of them. In Mark chapter 10, with his eyes, he sees the people with love and compassion. In the Sermon on the Mount, he tells us that the eye is the window of the body. You can tell a lot about a person's eyes. When the eye is clear, the soul is clean. When the soul is dirty, the eye is foggy. Jesus in his resurrected body with eyes of fire sees everything. He knows everything. Further from Revelation 1.15, we're told his feet were like burnished bronze, one it had been made to glow in a fur- furnace. His feet have been refined in a furnace. Now, again, remember the book of Revelation draws all the way through it the Old Testament. And that's what makes it so difficult for many because today with maybe the exception of the Psalms and the Proverbs, the Old Testament is the clean section of our Bible. Yet 300 of the 404 verses come directly from the Old Testament. Now you'll hear numbers like 600 and 800, but they're double counting and that's okay. But there are 300 specific references out of the 404 verses. That's 74% of the book of Revelation comes out of the Old Testament. We saw the theolog- theological structure comes out of the book of Daniel, and some of the illusions come out of Daniel. That's why Daniel is so important to understanding Revelation, and that's why we covered the book of Daniel before we did the Revelation. And if you remember in Daniel chapter two, there's that magnificent statue that the Nebuchadnezzar sees in his dream. And Daniel is given an ability from God to interpret the meaning of the statue. And it starts with the head of gold, picturing Nebuchadnezzar, and it goes all the way down to those feet that are mixed with clay and iron. And then we saw that mighty stone, a picture of the Messiah that comes and smashes the statue to pieces. A picture of God coming with a rod of iron, and he will rule over the nations of the world. So Jesus doesn't have iron and clay feet. He has feet that have been refined in a fire to emphasize the purity and the authority of his feet. And so the expression, the feet of kings, because kings are typically elevated when they uh, evaluate their subject. The feet of kings speaks of a king's authority. And Jesus, with bronze feet, and we studied last time that bronze in the Bible, and we'll see it again in the Revelation, is a symbol of judgment. And so Jesus comes with his feet of bronze, with his eyes of fire, and he's evaluating his people. So first, he distinguishes his character of the church. Secondly, the Lord distinguished the works of the church, the works of the church. And so the omniscient, all-seeing, authoritative Son of God is this. I know your deeds, some of your translations say, I know your works. And your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds or your works of late are greater than the first. So Jesus begins by telling us that he knows their deeds or their works. Now, works are fine as long as they are kept in perspective. The Bible is very clear that you're not saved by your works. You're not saved by your deeds. For by grace have you been saved through faith and not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. Paul will write in, in Galatians, if you could be saved by your works, then Christ died in vain. He died for nothing. Two reasons given in the Bible why your works cannot save you. They can never make you righteous. They can never remove the stain of sin. And God, is he will write at the end of the revelation, will not allow anything into his heaven that will defile it. And so unless somehow the defilement of sin is dealt with, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. And number two, works can never satisfy the just penalty of sin, which is death. But works are important. They're described in the Bible as the fruit of salvation, not as the root of salvation. You're not saved by works, but then the next verse says, we are his workmanship, poema, poetry, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And so Jesus recognizes their deeds, their works, and he spells them out with four nouns. Notice, love... Faith, service, and perseverance. The first two, love and faith, really describe our motivation. Twice-born saints are people who desire to serve the Lord, not because they have to as much as they get to, not because I'm trying to work my way to heaven, but because I'm going to heaven. We are not simply uh, motivated by a set of do's and don'ts. God has his do's and don'ts, but that's not the motivation for doing those do's and don'ts. It's the grace of God that teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live holy and righteously in in the present age. And then the next two nouns, notice, service and perseverance. Service, diaconon, it comes in the Bible is either servant or deacon. It's the same word. He that would be great among you, let him be the diaconon, the deacon of all. There is a non-technical use of the word. And then he that would be a deacon must meet these qualifications. That's the technical use of the word. But it's interesting that he describes these saints as diaconon. In other words, they didn't see the service in the church as relegated just to a particular uh, elite body of believers, but that every saint is called to be a servant. And then they were known for their perseverance. And it's a word that describes someone who is willing to keep going even in difficult circumstances, even under the strain of a Christ-hating world. And so we are to serve and persevere not out of compulsion not out of a spirit of I have to but out of a spirit that I get to and these were people who were growing and the emphasis is here is not quantitatively but qualitatively how do I know that because we will come in just a few verses where he will say their deeds of late are greater than the first That is, you are growing, and you are more characterized by these four nouns today than you were back yonder. They were becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. Listen, this is a great church in some respects. It's been said, and I think it may be accurate, that the lifespan of most churches in terms of their effectiveness is 15 years. And then after 15 years, the church begins to decline and wane and sometimes they go into total apostasy and they're no longer even considered a church by God. Here's a church, Thyatira, they've been around for 60 years. And Jesus said they were still progressing. Now, from a pure numerical perspective, 80% of the churches in America are on the decline very sad. The Wall Street Journal says that in the next decade 50,000 churches in America will close. They'll become nightclubs or condos or homes or all kinds of different things and that's what they are becoming. And it's so sad and so unfortunate. But here's a church that was progressing And they were progressing in the most important realm, and that was qualitatively. And typically, when the church are growing qualitatively, the church will grow quantitatively. Listen, you this morning, let's not talk about the church as a whole. Let's talk about us as individuals. We're either progressing or we are regressing. We are either green and growing or we are brown and dying. There's no in between. You cannot stand still. The great church in Ephesus was backsliding. They had left their first love. The small church here in Thyatira was progressing. They had a very relevant, deepening love. Now, that's what Christ distinguished about this church. Beginning now in verse 20 through verse 23, we have a description of what Christ disliked about this church, what he disliked about the church. Notice now verse 20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Two sad realities. First, Christ disliked their toleration of Jezebel's heresy. He disliked their toleration of the Jezebel heresy. There was a vice, mixed in with these four virtues, and it was a terrible vice. And so now we have the Son of God with his eyes of fire and his burnished bronze feet saying, I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. There was life in this church, but there was the beginning of a spiritual malignancy that if left unchecked would destroy this church. They were tolerating a woman whose teaching, both theologically and morally, was evil. Now, this is not the first church whose trouble might be placed back to trace back to some dear woman. This was Satan's witch, as it were, Mary Baker Eddy. She grew up in a Congregational church in New Hampshire. I preached in the the, the, the oldest Congregational church in New Hampshire when I was 23 years old. They had no idea what they were getting when they allowed this Campus Crusade speak team to come in. And they gave me the sermon, and the pastor came unglued, and after I'd spoken of heaven and hell, of how to be saved, he stood up in the pulpit and said, don't let this young man deceive you. There is no such thing as hell. Now, that was once a great church. And Mary Baker Eddy grew up in a great church but she did not repent, and so she came and developed a whole new religion called Christian science, which is neither Christian nor scientific. Ellen G. White, she was raised in a born-again, Bible-believing Methodist church in Portland, Maine, but she did not repent and received Jesus as Lord, and she created a church called Seventh-day Adventists. Now, there are, believe it or not, some born-again believers in the Seventh-day Adventist church, but it is so riddled with error and falsehood that in some parts of the world, they don't even consider them Christians. When I go to the Ukraine, they think Seventh-day Adventists, are a cult. We, We don't even fellowship with them, and that's true, at least in that section of the world. Now let me say, many more cults and aberrant forms of Christianity were started by men than they were by women. So I'm not picking on women here this morning. But Jesus here isolates, notice, the woman Jezebel. Now Jezebel was not her real name. That was her figurative name. She is figuratively being described like the Jezebel of the Old Testament. Remember 300 of the 404 verses go back to the Old Testament. So you might wanna write in the margin, 1 Kings 16 through 2 Kings 9. 1 Kings 16 through 2 Kings 9. If you're new to the Bible or maybe haven't read that section of Scripture in a while, go back and you're going to find out a whole lot about Satan's witch. Jezebel is her symbolic name. Remember, he's signifying this revelation to us as the opening verse indicates. And so most of our English translations, to catch the nuance in Greek, renders it that woman Jezebel or paraphrase, you know that woman, the, the Jezebel type. To call a woman Jezebel would be like calling a man Judas. It was the worst thing that could be said about her because if you know Jezebel from First and 2 Kings, you know she was a colorful character in more ways than one. She painted her eyes, she adorned her face, and when she went put her war paint on, she went out and she did evil. Horrible things. And no true prophetess, if they were born again, would keep the name Jezebel, they would immediately, I have a new name, and they would have immediately adopted it. But Jesus is giving her this symbolic name because she was a wicked woman. Jezebel in the Old Testament was a clever woman, a wicked woman. She came from Phoenicia. Her father was a king, and she introduced Baal worship. And I won't even describe it. It is so heinous and evil. It should never be mentioned, some of the things that she did from a pulpit. And of course, she ultimately, uh, you know, is judged by God and dies. And her husband Ahab, if you remember, up till that time, God says he's the most wicked king that had walked. The Northern Kingdom, twenty kings; the Southern Kingdom, twenty kings. Northern Kingdom, all twenty kings were evil. Southern Kingdom, seven righteous; the rest evil. And when Ahab steps to the throne, God says he's the worst king to date. And he's like a lot of men today. In some ways, he was a strong man. You find him often in battle. In fact, he dies in a battle. But in home, he's a weak man. There are men like that. They're strong at the office. But at home, they're weak. They're not the spiritual leaders of their home. And so Jezebel, the daughter of a pagan king... Gets Israel to worship Baal, the fertility god. And so God raised up Elijah. Remember him? There on top of Mount Carmel or Mount Carmel. And uh, he says you cannot mix Baal worship with Jehovah worship. Remember 1 Kings 18.21? How long will you hesitate? He says to the people. How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord, all caps, if Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. Because of Ahab's weakness, she very quickly has freedom to introduce wickedness. And Jesus repeatedly tells us, you cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve two masters at the same time. You're gonna serve one or the other. There is no middle ground. The same could be said of other religions and cults in our world today. If there was ever a woman who was inspired by the devil, if not inhabited by a demon herself, it was Jezebel. And Paul tells us in the New Testament that in the latter times, there will be doctrines of demons. Demons will be behind some teachings. Take Mormonism, for instance. You meet a Mormon, and they're so crafty, just like the devil describes himself. Uh, he's, uh, God describes him as an angel of light. And so when you ask them, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Of course we believe he's the Son of God. He's the Savior of the world. But Son of God is with a small s. You're a Son of God, you're a daughter of God. We're all sons and daughters of God, but not God the Son. And so their strategy, I think it's been eight or nine years now, they said we're going to mix in with the evangelicals. And now these dear Mormons are mixing in with the evangelicals, even at some of their conferences. And it's an evil. And God's people need to be on alert. Last Sunday, just last Sunday, one of the bishops of the United Methodist Church ordained a transgender person to be a deacon. Now, deacons are a little bit different in the UM church than they are, say, in our church. We follow the biblical pattern. They don't. In either case, uh, they are like preachers. Many of the pastors are really technically deacons. And so Sally Dick uh, went ahead and ordained her. And of course, you know, if you're transgender, is your name Mary or Mike? I don't know. You know, you're transgender. So they, she calls herself M. And when you describe a transgender person, it's not he or she, it's they or there, the plural pronoun. So they changed the words from the Book of Discipline when she laid hands on her. She said, pour out your Holy Spirit upon M. Send them, not him or her, send them now to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, to announce the reign of God and to equip the church for ministry. Now they did not discipline this bishop because according to the Book of Discipline, which the United Methodist Church uses, because this woman was not, she was a former lesbian, she said, I'm not sure, first she was a heterosexual, then she, which we all are when we're born, by the way, and, and then she becomes a lesbian, and then she's confused, so she becomes transgender, but because she supposedly is not living with another woman or whatever, then it's okay, and they've accepted it. Now, right now, in the church in South Carolina, the United Methodist Church in South Carolina, I read to you the letter from the bishop a few months ago and it was expressive, not just of his desire, but of churches across America, bishops across America, that the United Methodist Church is to pray for wisdom as to whether or not we should ordain homosexual or transgender people. They're already doing it, so I'm not sure what they're praying about. But you know, the rationalists look, we were wrong once on slavery and black people. Maybe we're wrong on transgender people. Look, if I were black, I would come up out of my seat and say, how dare you? How dare you even compare transgenderism to the civil rights movement? There is no comparison at all. This is an evil beyond evil. Now look, I want transgender, homosexual, drunks, fornicators, adulterers that come to this church, and we will welcome you and embrace you with open arms, but we're not going to change Jesus' standard for you to become a member. We want you to repent. We want you to believe on the Lord Jesus, and he will forgive you. Now, the United Methodist Church is so far away today. It's the third largest denomination in America, Roman Catholic, Southern Baptist, United Methodist. It's totally apostate today. If you are a Christian today and you give a dime to the United Methodist Church, you're giving a portion of that dime to promote some very evil things, you should leave. You say, I can't leave. I grew up in this church. My grandmother was in the church. My great-grandmother, my great-great-grandmother was in the church, they're all buried out back. Look, if grandma could get up and leave, she would, but you can and you ought to, you ought to. Now, listen, we're not talking here about a church. This is a church, the malignancy was started, and that's where it will end. But God wants them to deal with the malignancy now. Some, most of you were very supportive of the elders, and let me say thank you for that. When we decided to take our radio station out of Moody Broadcasting, and we did it on the basis of a decision they made, they said it was okay to drink, smoke, and gamble in moderation. Now forget the drinking issue today. I know it's fashionable, you know, especially in the reform movement. Go ahead, have a glass of wine with your beer and all this nonsense. Forget the fact that it causes a brother to stumble, has the appearance of evil, doesn't glorify God, and would be classified as strong drink and therefore forbidden unless you're a dying man and you give it as a painkiller like you give morphine. Forget that, that's a sermon in itself. Hmm. But just take smoking. I mean, one of the leaders in the reform movement who taught it's okay to smoke in moderation, he's on oxygen right now and can't leave his home. And they're encouraging these young men and women to engage in these things. And so when Moody said that, we said, no, we're done. We wrote him, pleaded with him. Look, my own seminary, They waited until Dr. Pentecost and Dr. Howard Hendricks were both dead. And now their policy for 90 years didn't reflect biblical truth and we were wrong. And so now it's okay. And the rationale is if we're going to get these young professors that we need, then we need to lift the standards. Look, you don't want those kinds of professors if that's what it takes to get them. And so they had this Jezebel type of woman. How long... How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If Yahweh is Lord, follow him. If Baal, follow him. Now, most of these folks were not doing that. Most of these folks were growing, and so Jesus commends the majority for not following the deep things of Satan. In fact, when you meet the living God, the pattern is your life will change. Listen to 1 John 3, little children. John writes this in his first letter. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. Just as he is righteous, the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. The Bible teaches that when you're born again, one of the evidences is is that the direction of your life changes. Certainly a Christian can fall into any kind of sin. And some of the saints in Thyatira, beyond the tares that were in the church, had fallen into sin. But the general principle is that when you receive Jesus as your Lord, your life changes. And if your life hasn't changed, it just meant you've never received him.
1: This Jezebel-type woman was leading some of the people at Thyatira astray. And when we conclude our message, Jesus or Jezebel, we'll see that the congregation should have taken steps to confront and rebuke this woman. To listen again to today's message, Jesus or Jezebel, part of our study from the book of Revelation, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV7. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll see what happens to the church at Thyatira. Join us then as we search the scriptures.